Okay, you've come tonight to Berean Bible Church. I'm Pastor Oliver Jones, and we're going to have a conversation about anger, understanding anger. And uh, as I was thinking about anger and casting my mind back to events and circumstances in my life where I displayed uh, interesting, odd, peculiar anger, uh, one of those times that came up was when I had a couple of Dalmatians, a male and a female Dalmatian. Well, I didn't have them for very long. And I was uh, taking them up for a walk around a park near my house, less than a mile away. And one had a blue leash and one had a red leash. And they were disobedient dogs. And I was a very impatient and young 18-year-old, maybe even 19. And uh, it, it uh, really frustrated me that when I was riding my bike with the two dogs, that they would keep running in front of my bike. And at uh, 19 years of age, I guess at this point in time, I took the leashes of the dogs in my anger and began beating the dogs with the leashes in the park to gain compliance, right? So I had a standard, and my standard was being violated, and I was taking my anger out on the dogs. And so the dogs were receiving my anger, and someone else in the park was watching. And when this woman saw what I was doing to these dogs, she got angry. I was violating her standard of righteousness. And she came over, and she had some choice words to say to me. And you can imagine my response to her was not very polite either. And I found that uh, the best way for this thing to mitigate itself would be to leave, to flee, and to, to get out of there. And that's exactly what I did. But it's interesting to look back and just realize this is what anger does. Anger makes a judgment about behavior. And my anger was kindled because of the provocation of the dogs. Now, you can look at that and say, well, was your anger righteous or not? And we're going to get into that tonight. That's what we're going to talk about. But there was a standard there, wasn't there? I had a standard. And the dogs violated the standard, and they felt the wrath of my standard, my unrighteous standard and my unrighteous response. They felt the wrath of that. Likewise, the woman that responded, was her response in righteousness or unrighteousness according to God's standard or her own standard? You know, I can look back and I don't really know if she was a believer and I have no idea. I can't remember whether or not she used curse words at me or not. You can imagine if she did, was that response justified? Was that the right response? Was, was her anger righteous? And then you ask this question. Is anger something that the dogs gave to me? Or was anger something that was already present? We're going to talk about that very point. Did the dogs produce anger in me? Did I produce anger in the woman that came and said something to me? Where does anger lie? Where does it sit? How does it start? What's its beginning and what is its end? What is its, end? What is its necessity? So we're going to look at these things, and, and you have in front of you an outline. And for those that just came in, there are some outlines here. You might just come up and can you pass these back for me? Just take those back there. Maybe I'll take one, Rod. Thanks, Eric. So we're just going to walk through this outline and we're going to try to understand and put a better picture in our minds of what anger really is. What's anger all about? So the first point in your notes, it's a question that you're going to ask me. So I figured we'd just jump right in with that question because it's a good one. And we can just start there because it's the best place to start when it comes to anger. And that question says, God gets angry, right? Most definitely. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis 3. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis 3. We don't have to go too far into scriptures to see that God is angry about sin. And the Garden of Eden account is filled with the righteous anger of God. Satan had tempted Adam and Eve, and they chose rebellion. And God was rightly angry. You can look at Genesis 3 and verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than any beast of the field on your belly you will go and the dust will eat and the dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children. Then look at 17 to Adam. God said, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. God is angry. 
He is cursing both Satan and Adam. And God is increasing pain on people, the woman and the man. And God wasn't done yet either. Look at verse 24. It says, so he drove the man out. He kicked them out, out of heaven, out of paradise. So there's anger for you in cursing, in increasing pain and kicking people out. In God's anger, it just gets hotter as you continue to read the scriptures. Look at chapter 4, verse 10. This is a conversation between God and Cain, the oldest son of Adam and Eve, who just murdered his brother Abel. And in verse 10 of chapter 4, God says to him, What have you done? In verse 11, he says, Now you are cursed from the ground. In verse 12, he says, When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on earth. Again, God is angry. Genesis chapter 6. God is so angry, he floods the whole world. Genesis 11. God is so angry, he confuses the language of the people who had congregated around the tower at Babel. Genesis 19. God is angry with Sodom and Gomorrah and rains fire down on heaven, from heaven onto them. It is no wonder the Old Testament gets a bad reputation among the people that are half interested with the Bible who say things like, I don't like the God of the Old Testament because he's always so angry. And he is. He's angry. But the God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament. And in fact, I will argue that he's the most angry in the New Testament. Yet people ask the question, so why all the anger? It seems unbecoming of God. Who is perfect to be upset, to be angry? Doesn't God have more control over himself? It seems that if he was truly loving, that anger would just go away, right? We would just do away with anger. Are you asking that right now? Why doesn't God just do away with anger? That's a good question, right? You want an answer. You deserve an answer. Why is God so angry? You know, I understand the question. But brothers and sisters, this is the wrong question. It's the wrong question to ask. The right question goes like this. And I wish you'd pay attention. Write this down. Scratch this into your memory. This is the right question. Based on what I did and said and thought in my heart yesterday, why wasn't I crushed in my sleep before I woke this morning? That's the right question. Based on what I did, said, and thought in my heart yesterday, why has God's anger not fallen on me to this very moment? How funny is it that we are more comfortable talking about a perceived flaw in God rather than discussing the wickedness and sinfulness that abounds in our own hearts? This point, this points you in the right direction to understand God's anger. But still you're asking the question, why all the anger? Is anger necessary? Is anger part of the perfections of God? And how could this anger, how could it be the case? Well, the straight answer is yes. Anger is necessary. And anger is part of the perfections of God. But how? It must be understood, anger must be understood as a response. Because anger flows perfectly from God's holiness, his justice, and his righteousness. The same can be said for his wrath, his curses, his increasing of pain, his banishments. God's anger is perfectly right. It's good, and you and I know it in our heart, that it's necessary. His anger is necessary. Can I tell you how much this frustrates the human mind? You know well. This really makes men angry. Really gets them upset. <laughs> We're talking about anger, right? Here's what's missing from our human thoughts on anger. All anger assumes possession of a high standard, which expects and even demands compliance. Do you get that? All anger assumes possession of a high standard which expects and even demands compliance. Anger is a response. 
a response which lives inside the essence of God and a response which lives inside us in our hearts. Ian Murray says this of God's wrath, which is God's anger. Wrath is not a passion in God. It is the unchanging response of holiness to the monstrosity of sin. What men fail to see most is that God is angry with sin. Men fail to understand holiness, righteousness, and perfection. They fail to see this for two reasons. One is a quality of humanity, and the other is a quality of deity, a quality of God. The first is that men are born into sin. This is a quality of humanity. We're born into sin. What do we call this? The two words, the TD, not the touchdown, the TD, the total depravity. Right, total depravity. We're totally depraved sinners who know nothing. We're no nothings regarding God's righteous standard. We have to continue to feast on his word to gain an understanding of his righteous standard. Second, they fail to see that God is also patient, gracious, and long-suffering. Because of the depravity, they fail to see that his anger should just squash them like a bug right now. But it is his patience and long-suffering and his grace that dominates. His wrath and anger did not cause him to wipe out Adam and Eve immediately after they sinned. Rather, his patience and long-suffering resulted in his wrath kicking them out with an eye, get this, with an eye and a heart toward restoration that's the heart of our god and he wants to use time to set and fix in his opportunity to show us his grace because that's the only way we could see it peter understands this so clearly when he says in second peter 3 9 the lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness but is patient toward you not wishing for any to perish but for all to come to repentance God's patience in the face of the certainty of his anger is known to Paul as well, who asks probably one of my favorite questions in Scripture in Romans 9.22 when he says, What if God, what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? What if God wanted to do that? What if he wanted to... Endure with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Isn't that his prerogative to do that? Doesn't he get the option to do that? That's what he's chosen to do. Endure vessels of wrath. I I, I just love that passage. There's always been a consistency to God's anger. And what has been consistent about God's anger? Two points. Two things have been consistent about God's anger. God's anger has always been a response from holiness to rebellion against his righteous standard. God's anger has always been a response from holiness to rebellion against his righteous standard. Second, God's anger has always been accompanied by restraint, shown in patience and long-suffering. And yet there was one place in history, one time, when God's anger met no restraint and dealt out his anger perfectly. There was one place and one time when the fullness of the wrath of God was unleashed on one person. The Old Testament gave the shadow, the glimpse at God's wrath, but the New Testament shows us the fullness of the wrath of God. It was placed on his son. This one, our Lord Jesus Christ, who endured the wrath of God after having lived a perfect life, meeting all the requirements of God's righteous law, God's perfect standard, never violated at one point, no failure. This one is the one on whom God was pleased to place all the fullness of his wrath, perfectly crushing his son, according to Isaiah 53.10. So let's look at Jesus, who lived perfectly, never sinning. Was Jesus ever angry? It's a simple answer. You know this. I see a lot of head nodding. Yes, of course he was. Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 3. Mark 3. There are several instances in the Bible where Jesus is said to be angry or by his actions demonstrating anger, sometimes in response to the actions of his disciples, many other times in response to the Pharisees. So important to note, there's an incident 
a provocation to which Jesus offers a response. Remember I said anger was a response? Listen to these texts. Pay attention to the incident, the provocation that requires and necessitates Jesus' response. Let's look at a few of these together. Jesus enters a synagogue in Mark 3. We're looking at verse 5. There's a man with a withered hand. As is so often the case, it happens on which day of the week? The Sabbath day. The Pharisees are watching closely, these legalists. Will he work on the Sabbath day, they're thinking to themselves? So Jesus calls the man with the withered hand to him and says, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? To save a life or to kill it? But they kept silent. After looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. We see provocation and we see anger. Mark 10, 14. Turn there. Mark 10, 14. Jesus rebukes the disciples who were trying to keep little children from coming to him. And the text says in Mark 10, 14 that Jesus was indignant. The disciples trying to keep children from Christ. And the text says Jesus was indignant. Again, we see provocation and anger. You can turn to Mark 11, 15 and 16. Jesus enters the temple, makes a cord of whips, begins to drive out the buyers and the sellers, and overturns the tables of the money changers. Again, we see provocation and anger. So here's the question that I presented to you when we started. If anger is a response to provocation, did the Pharisees make Jesus angry? Or did anger live inside Jesus' heart already? I'll ask you again. If anger is a response to provocation, did the Pharisees make Jesus angry? Or did anger live inside Jesus' heart already? Ooh, I feel like I stumped somebody. (laughs) My contention is this. You want to take a stab at it? I'm going to say this. You're on to it. No one can make you anything. What you are, particularly your anger, was already inside of you. The provocation just squeezes it out. Your heart's a sponge. And the provocation just squeezes out what's already inside of you. This is a provocation, and it squeezes out of Christ perfect anger. Because there's a violation, there's a standard And who knows the standard but the God-man, Jesus Christ. And at seeing the violation, his heart is squeezed and perfect righteousness in the form of anger and wrath comes out of him. My contention is you can't make anyone angry. Anger is already alive and well inside the heart. It's already alive and well inside the heart. I want you to add these two verses together in your mind. Think about these two verses. In Luke 6.45, Christ says, talking about the good, the good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth what is evil. Listen carefully. For, from his mouth, uh, for his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. Say it again. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. Okay? Add that with this thought. What is the source of the quarrels and conflicts among you? Is it not... Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? From James 4.1. He's saying that your anger and fighting is caused by your desires, enjoyment, and passions. He's saying that fighting is caused by desires in your heart. Your anger is caused by desires in your heart. And your desires in your heart, out of the abundance of your heart, your mouth speaks. So the words that come out are tied to the anger that already lives inside. Provocation doesn't make anger. Did you get that? Provocation. Being provoked doesn't make anger. Provocation only squeezes out what already consumes the heart. It's already there. And you'll ask, so was anger abiding in Jesus' heart? Yes, 
Yes, it was. But only if we further qualify that. Righteousness was abiding in Christ's heart. Holiness was abiding in Christ's heart. From this thought, I think we need to move to make a few definitions about anger. So we're going to go to the anger definitions. What is anger? I've got three definitions and I want to run them by you. The first is the most basic and really completes the last thought. Definition number one. Anger, pay attention, What you see it on your text there, right? You see it? I put it down there for you. Anger is a right response to non-compliance with a righteous standard. That's anger. This definition is helpful in three points that it addresses. First, anger is a right response. Second, a perfect standard is expected to be known and upheld. Third, compliance is uh, compliance to the standard is demanded but not produced. Did you get that? It's a right response. It understands and has already inside of its mind perfect a perfect standard and then it expects and demands compliance but it doesn't get it this definition recognizes the critical aspects of anger the righteousness and holiness of god which are the standards the sinful state of man which is the non-compliance and the necessary response which is god's anger second definition definition two it's, and it's important as you think about these definitions to keep in front of your mind holiness, depravity, and a necessary response. Okay, Holiness, depravity, and a necessary response. Definition number two, anger specializes in indicting others while esteeming self in righteousness and love. Now, do both of those two definitions so far match Jesus Christ? Doesn't that match Jesus Christ? Look at that again. Anger specializes in indicting others. Did Jesus' anger indict anybody? You bet it did. Did it esteem himself in righteousness and love when he did that? Absolutely. Who's going to deny that? <laughs> so that's, that's anger. Anger is a judgment. It makes a declaration. When you have anger, it screams guilty at the party that you're angry with. Did Christ's anger scream guilty at anybody? Yeah. As the necessary response to non-compliance to righteousness. At the same time, anger declares perfect knowledge of the righteous standard. Did Christ have the righteous standard? You bet he did. That last point right there, that should make all of us squirm around in our seats. Because if you were thinking along this whole line that Oliver's advocating for my anger... <laughs> Oh, man. Am I advocating for Christ's anger? Am I advocating for God's anger? You bet. Why? Because in the mind of deity comes the perfect righteous standard. And for us, for one second, to think that our anger yields perfectly God's righteous standard, how wrong are we? Look at the third definition for greater clarification about anger. Anger is uncontainable. Its expression is guaranteed when provoked. To match Christ's life? Okay, necessary part of the definition, right? It's uncontainable. Its expression is guaranteed when provoked. You cannot stop anger. Once a violation of righteousness is noted, it will face judgment. Because anger is a right response it's a correct response anger is just and it's absolutely just and rebellion to righteousness requires a response consequently anger is not made but anger already existed it is directly tied to holiness and righteousness it's tied to the standard anger is tied directly to the standard used to judge And anger demands expression when provoked. Holiness and righteousness are bound to give perfect expression to anger. They're bound to do that. Holiness has to give voice to anger. That's what the cross is all about. So anger is a response which originates. This is the definition right here. I'm going to read this slowly, maybe twice. So anger is a response which originates in holiness and righteousness 
and gains expression only through provocation. Do it again. Anger is a response which originates in holiness and righteousness and gains expression only through provocation. You cannot truly make anyone angry. Anger is already present. Now you want to ask the question, do I have anger? Based on the terms which I just described, understanding anger, no. No chance. If what I just described was anger perfectly, you don't have what I just described. You've got something else. In order to know true anger, you need to know holiness and righteousness perfectly. You need to be able to judge perfectly. You need to be able to offer perfect justice at the perfect time, in the right dosage, in the right quantity, at the right volume, in the right temperature. Do you see how many qualifications there are of righteousness? Pick. You pick for me the one moment, the one second in your life when you nailed it. My anger at that moment was flawless. Got it down, that one second. Anybody? So where's your anger? It's not in the righteous standard of God. This is where language becomes a problem. So let's help it out a little bit. We've got to get past the barrier of language and our depravity. So let's call what we've described the true anger, the genuine anger, let's call that holy anger. And let's put that as over there, otherworldly. Let's put that as God's anger, holy anger. And let's distinguish holy anger from human anger, human anger, what you have. Now let's look back at those definitions of anger that I gave you and let's perform unregenerate surgery on those definitions to bring them in line with the fall of Adam and Eve. Let's conform those definitions to our understanding of total depravity so that we can have a definition of human anger. Okay, go to definition one. We need to do two things to make this definition work for depraved men. We need to pull two words out of the text to be a human anger. What two words do we pull out of this definition? Anger is a right response to noncompliance with a righteous standard. Which two words do you pull out? Right and righteous. Perfect. Pull the two words out and you have your human definition of anger, which would be, if we reread this, a response to noncompliance with a standard. A response to noncompliance with a standard. Sound good? Is it accurate? You know, it's intentionally vague and it's highly subjective. Can you feel that? <laughs> That's what your anger is. It's vague and, and subjective. Let's add to this definition number two. Definition number two was anger specializes in indicting others while esteeming self in righteousness and love. Here we need to drop four words. And oh gee, uh, can you figure out which four words need to be dropped? In righteousness and love, the last four words. And that leaves you with anger specializes in indicting others while esteeming self. Indicting others while esteeming self. All anger is a judge. All anger. Human anger and holy anger is a judge. It acts like a judge. In fact, it pulls you into the courtroom and it makes you the it makes you the defend or it makes you the prosecutor, the plaintiff, the judge, the bailiff. It makes you all those characters. That's what anger does. It puts you in the courtroom and puts you in total charge. But we've intentionally removed the quality, the qualification, the standard of judgment and what it, what it yields for someone, esteeming self in righteousness and love. You, you're not esteeming yourself in that. You're just esteeming yourself in your own pride and arrogance. So then look at definition three. Anger is uncontainable. Its expression is guaranteed when provoked. And I would ask you, what judge listens to a case and issues no verdict? Verdicts are made by judges. This is the primary function for which they exist. So this definition is actually a rule of anger. Anger is uncontainable. Its expression is guaranteed when provoked. That's already yours. You own that one. Anger is a judge that will render a verdict, and you have inside of you a judge that will render a verdict according to your standard, not a righteous standard. So here's human anger. It's this. Human anger 
is a response to non-compliance to a standard that specializes in indicting others while esteeming self whose expression is guaranteed when provoked. Human anger is a response to non-compliance to a standard that specializes in indicting others while esteeming self whose expression is guaranteed when provoked. And I'd ask you, what's the most pivotal word in that definition? What's the most pivotal word? For me, it's standard. For me, the most pivotal word is standard. What is your standard? From where does it come? Your anger tells us a lot about your standards. Your anger is saying all kinds of things about you, and your anger is, is showing, and you are showing your anger in various ways frequently. So, how is my anger seen? How is my anger seen? I'm going to cover three types of expression of human anger. Three types of expression of human anger to, to show you and just recap with you how your anger is seen by other people. It's seen in the form of covert anger, cold anger, and hot anger. You know hot anger well, so we'll start with that one. Hot anger starts with heated quarreling and then moves like a wildfire to rage. It picks up speed and goes on the attack. It's violent and wrathful. Next, it comes in fighting, using fists to enforce compliance to its ridiculous standards and rules. At maximum ferocity, hot anger yields murder and war. Move to covert anger. Covert anger is deceptive. Your sarcasm is a means of your anger. It speaks a lie to communicate a violation of your standard. Your sarcasm does that. In other forms, covert anger is gossip, the spreading of untruth. Again, because someone else fails to meet your standard. Grumbling is like this. It's covert anger. And being defensive is covert anger as well. As you try to put on a cloak of self-righteousness, but the standard is your own standard. Finally, if you haven't run into covert anger or hot anger recently, which chances are you have, surely you're a friend of and a member of the Cold Anger Cafe. The Cold Anger Cafe, who serves up silent treatment regularly. Silent treatment. When you withhold speech in an attempt to manipulate and control as we defend conformity to our own standards, you must conform to me or I will not speak to you. We, this is the game that we play, right? If that doesn't work, we employ withdrawal. We just separate ourselves. Separation for not playing by our rules. It is a demand of conformity to a standard as well. But the standard, again, is just your unrighteous standard. Detachment is another term here in cold anger. And then we do this. We go into scorekeeping in cold anger, scorekeeping. It becomes time to tally everyone's good behavior and tally up everyone's bad behavior. But again, according to what standard? Does God sit in heaven with a magic notebook keeping tally of the score? You know, I just think about the debt that I owe him and what he's going to do with the debt. You, you keep score. You're scorekeeping so that you can turn and criticize appropriately. And your criticism leads to justification for withholding favor or good from those who deserve it, which is against what the Bible says. You're not to withhold favor from or good from those who deserve it. You show off your anger in these behaviors, but what does your behavior say? What does your anger say about your heart? What is happening inside your heart? Let's look at that question. What does my anger say? It's a great question. But first, I want you to get this picture in your mind because we talked about this a little already and I already gave you the analogy that your heart is like a sponge. So let me ask you the question. Is orange juice inside of an orange before you squeeze it? Or does orange juice just appear when you actively press on it? Is apple juice inside of an apple before you squeeze it or only when you put your hands on it and press on it? It's already in there, right? 
It's already in there. Anger is the juice that flows out of the human heart when it is squeezed. The heart is, is not a fruit. The heart is a sponge. And it's been soaking up all kinds of influences and standards. So what does your anger say? You turn to Matthew 18, verse 21. Your anger reveals all of your influences. The sources of your standards can be determined and seen by your anger. It's speaking to me. It's talking to me. If we're to sit in counseling and you're to tell me about your anger, I'm listening to your influences. I'm listening to your standard come right out of your mouth and you're communicating it right to me. Your anger says how unrighteous your heart is. It shows clearly how far separated your heart is from God's righteous standard. Your human anger so clearly says these things. It says, I'm a friend of the world. I'm at war with God. He's done me wrong, and I don't believe in providence, and it's insufficient. I want the stuff of life more than I want God's glory and his plan. Your anger says, I'm unfaithful to God, even adulterous, and I'm happy with it. Your anger says, I'm un, I'm, I am a willing partner of Satan. Your anger says, I do not understand cancel debt. I don't cancel debt. Consider Matthew 18 in the parable of the wicked slave. Jesus is giving Peter a lesson on forgiveness. You know this parable very well. It is a kingdom of heaven parable, and the kingdom is settling debts. The, the king is settling debts with his slaves, and one slave owed an enormous amount of money, 10,000 talents. Read with me in verse 27 of Matthew 18. And the Lord said of that, and the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave the debt. The Lord of that slave felt compassion, released him, and forgave the debt. Verse 28. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back all that you owe. This is witnessed by other slaves who knew the forgiveness shown by the king. They go and they tell the king. Then the king orders the wicked slave to appear before him again. And read with me in verse 32. Of chapter 18. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Our anger is not in line with our king's anger. Our anger is human anger. Our standard of judgment is wickedly flawed. It is self-seeking only, always, and continually. Our anger says that inside of us is a tsunami, a volcano, a consuming fire, a punishing wave, ready to pounce on whichever victim is going to come next in front of me. The opportunity for explosion and devastation takes only a minor provocation against our unrighteous standard. The hardest lesson to learn regarding anger is, is that unrighteousness is sown into the fabric of your flesh. I, I mentioned this earlier, but for how many seconds of your life do you believe that you have had perfectly righteous anger? Totally righteous anger is, is near impossible. I would dare say it is impossible to us to get the, the righteous standard of God nailed in so perfectly that in all of the variables that constitute that instant of anger, that you had them all dialed in just right. Inevitably, in, in your best moment of anger, you spoke too long. Your words were too harsh. Your ferocity was too much. Your grace was too little. Inevitably, something was turned off because of your flesh. Your human anger shows your degree of separation from God. James says it this way in verse one, chapter 1, verse 20. He says, For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. So how do we fix it? 
How do we fix it? How do we contend with human anger? How do we defeat human anger? Well, first, the continual call of the scriptures is to be slow to anger. Turn in your Bibles to Exodus 34. The call in in your scriptures is to be slow to anger. It's like it's a known quantity inside of you. So the command that goes out is you be slow to anger. Proverbs 14:29 says, "He who is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who is quick-tempered exalts folly." Well, that's a shot in the arm. If you're not slow to anger but rather quick-tempered, you are a a champion, a proponent, an advocate for folly. James 1:19 says this, "This you know, my beloved brethren, But everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. You're in Exodus 34. This matches God's anger. To be slow to anger. As we see in God's self-description to Moses in Exodus 34, verse 6. He had asked for the Lord to pass by him, and the Lord granted this to him. And it says in verse 6, Then the Lord passed in front of Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. This is our, our Lord's description of himself. He says he's slow to anger. So that's number one. How do you defeat human anger? You become slow to anger. Point number two would be, by being slow to anger, you're demonstrating self-control over anger. And that's point number two, is that you need to have self-control. If you're going to slow down anger, you need to choose to have self-control over anger. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 5.17. You already know Galatians 5.22, so you're going to turn to 2 Corinthians 5.17. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Self-control is expected of believers in Jesus Christ because believers have a new nature. We have a new nature. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely... That God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he and he has committed to us the word, the word of reconciliation. How often is it that we count others trespasses against us, but he doesn't count ours? He gave us this ministry of reconciliation. How does that work? What's a ministry of reconciliation? Not counting others' trespasses against them. Being forgiving, compassionate. We just read Matthew 18 with the wicked slave, right? He was uncompassionate, unmerciful. The demand here is that our judgments be merciful and that they be aimed at restoring human relationships. So you need to be slow to anger. You need to be self-controlled by the power of the Spirit. And third... You need to see the way of escape provided by God. God provides escape routes. You don't have to get locked into being squeezed with your anger. You can see that a situation is headed toward your anger being squeezed and you can slide left and slide right and go down. Turn to 1 Corinthians 10.13. It does not have to be the case that sin and anger always come out of us. It does not have to be the case. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says this. It says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. Any provocation, any challenge that comes your way can be handled. 
you can deal with it because the God who saved you doesn't want you dwelling in sin, dwelling in anger, because the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. And he doesn't want you defiling yourself while he's living in you. And your anger is a defilement. Practically, you can just physically cover your mouth. You can walk out. You don't have to stay. You can use your feet. You, you can walk out. You can self-impose a timeout and just go put yourself into a corner or a place where you can gather your faculties back up to come in and offer, as Ephesians 4.29 says, a word of grace to those who hear. You don't have to respond in hostility. Interestingly, these practical provisions are available to the unsaved. This is part of general revelation. These things just make sense. However, there's no abiding power internally to help the unregenerate through their anger. There's no power to cleanse them of wickedness and a sinful heart. Without the Holy Spirit, the attempts of men to control their anger are futile and even pride-filled as they would desire this appearance of self-control over their anger. Lasting change to anger can only be affected in the heart that has been saved. And as we saw from the beginning of our study, anger in the saved means that the saved must change. Our standard must become aligned with God's righteous standard. The fourth point to help you out of your anger, pray for wisdom and guidance from God and help to control your anger. Pray for help. You see this in Hebrews 4.16. You'll, you'll beat your anger on your knees. That's where you'll beat your anger. When you realize that your anger does not produce the righteousness of God. When you are crushed at the effects of your anger, you will fall before the king's throne and you will cry and plead and pray. And Hebrews 4.16 says, Therefore, let us confidently approach the throne of grace to receive mercy and to find grace to help in time of need. And fifth and finally, you'll faithfully practice the process of peace purchased in the blood of Christ. If you're going to overcome your anger, you're going to have to practice the process of peace faithfully. This was purchased in the blood of Christ. Turn to 1 John 1.9. The process of peace, I've been talking about it in our biblical counseling sessions for, for many weeks now. Someone tell me, can someone tell the group, what is the process of peace and where do we find it on our, on our body? <laughs> Does anyone know? Where's the process of peace? It's with all of you right now. Does anybody have it? Miss Marlene, do you have it? It's on your hand. It is. It's right there. Don't you see it? It's, we need a tattoo it. <laughs> What's the process of peace? It starts with the little guy. Confess the thing that Christians just don't do enough of. It's just a little one, right? Confession, what's the next one? Repentance. We repent. And what's the difference between the two? The second one, the first one says, this is what I did. The second one, repentance says, I don't want to do that anymore. It has a real heart burden in it. A, a real true indication that the Holy Spirit is with that repentance. The next thing is to ask for forgiveness. In the horizontal relationships, you ask for forgiveness. When you go to the throne of grace, God's forgiveness is like an ocean. You run headlong and dive into his ocean of forgiveness. It's available to you. Know that you're forgiven. Romans 8.1, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And after you have confessed and repented and asked for forgiveness and know that you're forgiven of God, you restore the relationship at whatever cost it comes to you. If you need to replace a window, if you need to return a rake, if you need to take someone out to dinner, whatever it is, you, you do the restoration, the hard work. You, you pay back one and a half times, two times, whatever's burdening your heart. You make sure restoration happens in full, and then you go about obeying God. That's the opposable digit, right? The one that holds it all together. That's the thumb that's got strength to it. You, you obey God. What's this whole process? Obedience to God. Look at 1 John 1, 9. This process of peace was purchased by the blood of Christ. It's purchased in his blood. It's his hand, nail-pierced hand, that gives us this. 1 John 1, 9. What does 1 John 1, 9 say? 1 John 1, 9 says, if, if we confess our sins, 
that he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what it says. Anger is not our master. Christ is our master. We have an advocate. We have an advocate who will be there when we fail. We must rely on this helper, our advocate, to overcome our slavery to sin, to overcome our anger that already lives inside of us. No one provoked you and made you angry. They didn't make you angry. They provoked you and squeezed out of you what was already inside. Brothers and sisters, we need to change our influences. Our influence, our primary influence, needs to be this book, God's revelation to you. Your influences need to be this book, this church, the people of this church need to be in your lives and about your lives and about one another's business so that we can have this fellowship, so that we can push out the anger and so that our heart, when it gets squeezed by any provocation, what flows out but pure living water at some soul that desperately needs it? Because what does their provocation against you most often say? You're building your own little kingdom. What were they doing? They were building their own little kingdom as well. And the two little kingdoms, what did they do? They kind of bumped into each other, didn't they? What do you have in that moment if your heart flows out with rivers of living water? You have an evangelistic opportunity to communicate to that person that you know the righteous standard of God and an opportunity to give them life eternal just like you have. That's why we talk about these things. Anger doesn't have to dominate you. It doesn't have to control you. Through the power of the spirit of the living God, I know it's the case. Let anger diminish here among us. Shall we pray? Okay. Father, these things are heavy. They're weighty. They're all-consuming. This anger that we have, it is a regular, daily, habitual part of us. It is inside our hearts already. We are kingdom builders. We want things our way, and we look past your righteous standard to get things our way. Father, help our eyes not to look past. Help our eyes to see so clearly where, how, when, how long we violate your righteous standard. Call us to repentance. Call us to confession. Have us pursue forgiveness and restore this relationship with you so that we can have an impact and a difference in this world for you. You are our king. We will make these changes gladly. We are in pursuit of you. And we will do these things gladly, putting off our selfishness and our wicked arrogance so that we can demonstrate you to others on earth because it is just a short time that we're here. And then glory, glory, hallelujah, we're with you in heaven forever. Help us to honor you. You're the one that saved us. Do this while we live here that our experience here would be a blessing to others and to us. And glory to you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.